Well, it is so good to see you today. We're starting a series on angels. Now, when it gets right down to it, the Bible is the story of Jesus. The Old Testament says he's coming, the New Testament says he's here, and then later in the New Testament it says he's coming back. So never, never lose the fact the Bible is about Jesus. But there's no way to read the story of Jesus without coming across angels. When you look at his life on the earth, angels are present at key moments in his ministry. Well, clearly they're present when he is ministering. Uh, there is the moment when Jesus was fasting and was tempted by the devil. And the Bible says after Satan left him, the angels came and ministered to him. Scripture tells us that they would have been available to him when he was dying on the cross. Had Jesus wanted to abort the mission, he could have called 72,000 angels and they would have come just like that. They were at the tomb. Last Easter, we talked about how that the angels were at the tomb to explain things to Jesus' followers who came looking for his body. And when Jesus defied the law of gravity and lifted off on the day of ascension, the Bible says angels were there to tell the disciples that he was going to come back just like he left. And of course, as we talk about the life of Jesus, you can't read the story of the birth of Jesus without angels. And we know they're part of the Christmas experience. Many of us will give and receive Christmas cards. And a number of Christmas cards will have depictions of angels. They're part of Christmas music. Many Christmas songs are about angels. Perhaps the most well-known, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. They're part of nativity scenes. They're part of Christmas plays. I started to ask how many of you played angels in the nativity scene. For some reason, I was always the shepherd, and the teacher just said, stay in the background and be quiet. I never got to be an angel, but some of you got to, I guess maybe I just didn't look like an angel. But they're part of the nativity scenes, and we even have a lot of movies that talk about angels. Hey, I went home after the last service last night and turned on one of our local stations, and It's a Wonderful Life was on the 1946 Frank Capra movie with Jimmy Stewart, Clarence the Angel. I'm not sure there's any truth to that, but you and I know that angels are part of the Christmas story, so consider that for a moment. If you take the bracketed section of time, those 33 years that Jesus was on the earth, angels are present at the beginning, announcing his birth, and they're present at his ascension, and they're all over the Bible. So today in the message, I just want to introduce the subject of angels. We'll have three more messages. Christmas Eve, we'll get into the birth of Jesus and how the angels interact with that. But let's just start with this. Angels are mysterious to me. I think and I hope they will be mysterious to you. Now, sometimes there are subjects that the Bible covers that are mysterious because the Bible simply doesn't devote a lot of ink to that story. For instance, there's a whole lot that we don't know about the first day of creation because the Bible just kind of presents it and it's there. We know that God created, but you basically have a couple of chapters in the Bible and then references to creation after that. There are many other situations in the Bible that remain somewhat mysterious to us because God did not elaborate. But that's not the case with angels because when we open the Bible, we discover angels all over the place. They are in the book of Genesis and they're in the book of Revelation. In the first book and the last book. In Genesis, they show up. In Revelation, they're highly involved 
especially during the tribulation period that Revelation talks about. So in the first book and the last book, in all the books in between, there are over 300 direct references to angels in the Bible. And in addition to that, my favorite expression referencing angels is God introducing himself as the Lord of heaven's armies. Heaven's armies are the angels. Do you know how many times God refers to himself as the Lord of heaven's armies? 282 times. Now that just blows my mind. Clearly, God talks a lot about angels in the Bible. So, if they're not mysterious in the sense that there are so many descriptions of angels, why do they remain mysterious? Well, I can't answer that for you, but I can answer it for me in three simple statements. They are mysterious because number one, they're not us. Number two, they're not God. And number three, they're here. That's a challenge for me. I, I, I sort of have a concept of God. I clearly know what it's like to be a human being, but they're not God and they're not us, and yet they're here as we just saw in the Bible. So let's just start with the fact that they're not God. Whatever we get out of the series, it's really important for us to understand that angels are never to be given the place that only God has. That's really clear in the first couple of chapters of Hebrews. But when John was receiving the revelation, in fact, this is in the last chapter of your Bible, he is in the presence of this majestic angel, and this angel is so glorious that John is freaked out, and he starts, well, let's read this. He said, I fell on my face to worship at the feet of the angel who laid it all out before me. He objected, no, you don't. I'm a servant just like you and your companions worship God. And that appearance, that, that expression happens several times in the Bible as angels say, don't worship us, we're not God. Worship belongs only to God. So they're not God, but then they're not us. In the Psalms, and this is also quoted in the New Testament book of Hebrews, but in Psalm 8, verse 4, the question is asked, what, is, what are humans that you are mindful of us and the Son of Man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. Well, physically, we are not up to the angels. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament about a time when the Assyrian army was attacking Judah and one angel wiped out an army of 185,000. That, that kind of strength and mojo is just not available to us. So the angels are different from us in the sense that they're more powerful, but this is intriguing to me. There's something else very different between the angels and humans. Angels were never offered a plan of redemption. Before the meter of time of this world started ticking, there was a revolution in heaven. And one of the angels, Lucifer, who we know as Satan, Lucifer got tired of bringing all the glory to God. And he said, I'm pretty hot too. I want to get glory. And he started a revolution in heaven. Revelation tells us a third of the angels sided with him. There was war in heaven. That's a direct quote from Revelation. There was war in heaven. And God just dumped that third of the angels and Lucifer out of heaven. Now, those angels we now know as demons, they were never given an opportunity to have a second chance. You and I, on the other hand, are given a lifetime opportunity to respond to God. In fact, that's what the Bible is. It is God's plan 
of a second chance. Our first parents blew it up in the Garden of Eden. God said, I'm not content to let this world spin out into a black hole. And so God made this plan of redemption by sending his son into the world, having him live the life that we can't live. Then he died the death we weren't prepared to die. And God now has a deal on the table for you and me. But such was not the case for angels. In fact, there's a verse in the Bible that says the angels are intrigued by salvation. That's why Jesus told us this in Luke 15. He said, every time somebody turns around and puts faith in Jesus, the angels rejoice in heaven. Man, we had almost 1,600 people accept Christ during Judgment House. What went on at New Spring Church changed the dynamics that went on in heaven because the angels just kept partying. So they're not God and they're not us, but they're here. I've always been honest with you about one thing. As I was growing up, faith did not come easy for me. I, I am the person who asks the question, why? And I believe the word of God, and I would go to the wall for it, but I, I always have questions. You know, I always admire those whose faith is so strong they can just hear the word of God and latch onto it. I wish I could be more like that. But it is my nature to ask questions. And so when I think about these angelic beings who are not God and not us, I'm curious. I want to know what's the point. Why angels? God is all-powerful. He, he clearly does not need them. But then he also clearly does not need us. This is not going to be satisfying, but I can give you the answer to why angels in two words. Just because. Yeah, just because. I remember when I was a kid, I already told you a little bit about my personality. I would ask why to my mom and dad, and I hated that answer more than anything else. Why do I have to do this? Just because. Why is it this way? Just because. Why do I have to go to school? Just because. That was a good answer to that one, but my parents said, just because. Now, the one I hated the most, my mother extrapolated this out, and she used to say, because I'm the mother and you're the little boy. <laughs> well, why is it that we don't like that answer? Because it doesn't pass our tests. But there's a whole lot of stuff that God doesn't answer because we just don't have the intellectual horsepower to process it. And then secondly, sometimes God just wants to do things because he's God and I'm not. So the answer to why angels is because God wanted them. Some of you were here a couple of years ago when I preached a message called Reasons Versus Purpose. And it was, it was a message that was much loved here, and, and we kept selling it out of it in the bookstore. And the thing about that message, Reasons Versus Purpose, we said in it, when we look at God, he often does not give us the reasons, but he tells us what he wants to happen the purpose. And so although you and I may not really understand the reason why he created angels, what God does do is he very clearly elaborates on what the angels are here to do. Now, there are so many scriptures I could pick, but there are two that are my personal favorites. And I want to share them with you because if you want to know what angels do, here is the first thing. Psalm 103 verse 20, praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his commands listening, uh, carry out his plans, listening for each one of his commands. So that's what angels are supposed to do. 
And when we read scripture, we see that, especially in a chapter like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is allowed to look into heaven in the throne room, and he sees the angels around the throne saying, holy, 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 and you get this sense that the angels are just clustered around God. Jesus talked about this when he talked about children, because when the disciples tried to shoo the children away, thinking that they were a nuisance, Jesus said to them, you, don't, you guys don't understand. It's not your angels that are on the front row around the throne. It's the kids' angels that are right around the throne. So we know one of the reasons for the existence of angels and one of the purposes of angels is to listen for each one of God's commands. And then they execute those commands and they carry the plans out. In the Bible, you see this so many times, whether it's guarding the entrance to the closed garden of Eden, whether it's pulling out backslidden believers from the Sodomites and Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it's helping God's children in trouble, bringing God's word to prophets, whether it's singing about God's holiness around the throne like we see in Isaiah or getting a jackass's attention because the writer won't listen. I mean, we could go on and on and on about what angels do, listening for each one of God's commands and executing his orders. But for the rest of the sermon, I want to talk about my second, well, really it's my favorite verse about what angels do. It's the second verse that we're going to look at because this is personal. The second purpose of angels, and I fall in love with this verse. I mean, if you haven't already read this, fall in love with this today. Angels are spirit messengers Sent. That's interesting because the Greek word for angels, we get our, actually we get our word angel from angelos. It means a messenger that is sent. So the Bible says angels are spirit messengers sent out to help and care for those who will receive salvation. I love that. It gives me chills because I can be a real screw up. I can be really clumsy. I can be a risk taker in my life. And it is good to know that God is sending out his spirit messengers to help and care for me. And this is an intriguing little phrase. It says that they are sent to help and care for those who will receive salvation. There are probably like 7,000 of us here this weekend. You know what would be so cool? What would be so cool is if we could just do this interview with everybody here and say, was there a time before you accepted Jesus and you were really close to the edge and something happened and you look back on it and you think, wow, I could have died so easily. Hey, I, I think a lot of us could do that. A person could be here today and you could say, I'm an agnostic or I'm a non-theist. I don't even believe in God. But you know what? You may someday. And how do you know, even if the God you don't believe in, how do you know the God that you don't believe in has sent his angels to watch over you because someday you're going to know Jesus. That is so cool. Let me read it one more time just so you know this is not Mark. This is God. Hebrews 1.14, the angels are only spirit messengers sent out to help and care for those who are to receive his salvation. It gives me chills. Well, another question might be, well, then what do angels look like? Because on the Christmas cards that you get, they could look all different kinds of ways. Well, this is not for today's talk. Maybe we'll have time for it later, but the angels in the Bible look very different 
I mean, if you look at the depiction of the angels that sat on top of the, the golden angels that they crafted on top of the Ark of the Covenant, they look pretty much like we look at angels, kind of like our image on the, on the screen. But man, you open up the book of Ezekiel, and there's the story of these spirit beings that have these wheels that are able to move in any direction without turning. I mean, and the power and the sound of these angels that sit right below the throne of God, and they don't look like anything that I've ever seen on a Christmas card. Well, the answer to the question is what we just read. They are spirit beings. Do they have the opportunity or the availability to manifest differently? I can't prove it, but I believe they do. For one thing, many of the verses in the Bible that talk about angels have them appearing almost as humans. We may have a whole talk around this next week, but in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, the Bible says, don't forget to be kind to strangers because some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. So if you could entertain an angel without realizing it, they might actually have the ability to appear as human. I don't know. I'm just piecing together and connecting the dots from what I have. But what I do know is that God sends his angels to be powerful spirit messengers to help and care for those who are God's children or will be God's children. There have been some things that have happened in my life that as I look back on, I know I really believe if you ever have an interaction, it's just got a different vibe. I mean, I understand the law of averages and I understand God's blessing and his kindness in our everyday life, but they're just, let me, could I just share three with you real quickly among many? We bought the land where this campus is in 1995. And I'd been looking for land since 1991. We finally moved out here in 1999, so that was eight years. And as I've shared with you before, it was always impossible. The church that moved out here was a church that averaged around 600 in attendance. So it was impossible for seven years and 51 weeks. And it just sort of grinded on me that we weren't moving as fast. But when God did the miracle of helping us acquire this land, it was still two years before we started construction. And in those two years, every day, I would drive out to this area. Now, we're surrounded by commercial and residential real estate. In those days, this was all a milo field in the middle of nowhere. And there were milo stalks out there. But every morning, I, we lived in Bel Air at the time. I would drive around what was then finished of K96, I would come out here and I would kneel and I would pray among the Milo stalks and I would believe God for what God, I, for what I, I just had a sense God wanted to do here. In those days though, I had a routine that was not necessarily a good thing. I was addicted to Diet Coke and before the health police took over, you could buy a 42 ounce Diet Coke at McDonald's. It was deep and wide and so, <laughs> Every morning, I went through the same routine. I would leave my home early in Bel Air. I would stop by McDonald's. They knew my name. They knew who I was. If they saw my car driving on North Rock, they would just start filling up that big <laughs> Diet Coke. They would have it ready for me. I mean, it was the standing joke inside McDonald's that 
Pastor Mark's coming in. He's going to get a big Diet Coke. There were days when they just had marked, you don't need to pay us anything. We just have it here for you. I mean, it, it was that kind of deal. I remember one winter morning, I was on my way out to look at this campus. Well, what would be the campus? A Milo field. And I stopped at McDonald's, and I was the only customer in the entire store. At the counter, in the dining room. Only customer. There were four people behind the counter. They all stood with their backs to me. These are people I knew. They knew me. I knew their names. They knew my name. I stood there, and they just held, kept with, with their backs turned to me. And it was the most bizarre thing. I tried, you know, there's no bell that you can ring for service at McDonald's. I'm just making noise, kind of like tapping on the counter. He didn't do anything. I am very impatient. About 45 seconds after I thought I should have been served, that was all I could take. I got back into my car. I stormed out of McDonald's, got on K96, and about 45 seconds ahead of me, I watched as a tractor-trailer travel, travel truck, a, 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 a tractor-trailer gravel truck cartwheeled into my lane right where I would have been. I watched it eject the driver. He was killed in that accident. The next day, I walked into McDonald's. They just all spoke to me like they always knew me. It was like any other day. You say, Mark, that stuff happened. No, nah, there's a different vibe. It was also this time of year. As I said, we lived in Bel Air. We lived in a two-story house. In those days, we didn't have Stephen. It was before he was born. Well, I take that back. He was a baby. Jonathan and Jared were probably around 13 and 11. And we had all the bedrooms upstairs, but Jonathan, I think, would reach the age of 13, and he decided he wanted a bedroom in the basement, so we created a bedroom for him downstairs. I'll tell you that for a reason. Well, I remember that day especially because we've been looking forward to it for a long time, you know. There was a Christmas concert that we had tickets for and we were really excited about. And that afternoon before the concert that we were all looking forward to, I took Jonathan and Jared over to the rec center in Bel Air and we were playing basketball. And Jonathan landed hard on his side and kind of injured himself and we were afraid that he was seriously hurt. We took him home and I don't remember a whole lot that happened. It's just that we were hoping he didn't break something. He was able to walk. Well, anyway, we, I was miffed because I really wanted to go to that concert, but now we weren't going to be able to go to that concert. So we were getting ready for bed that night, and the rest of us were all going upstairs to our bedrooms, and Jonathan was about to go downstairs to the basement bedroom, and I said, hey, I just something popped into my head. I said, son, before you go to the basement tonight, if you don't feel well during the night, I won't be able to hear you from the second floor, so why don't you just sleep on the couch tonight. And so he did. Well, the next morning, I decided I was going to take some time off, do a little Christmas shopping. Marilyn and I decided we would let the boys sleep in. And we would run down to McDonald's and have breakfast and do some Christmas shopping. I've thought about this so many times, I'm really not even sure what I felt, I just had the sense that something was different in the house. Well, we went on to McDonald's, and I kept thinking about it. It just felt unusual in the house. And I said, Mary Alice, why don't we just schedule this for another day? I'll take you back home, and I'm going to go to the office and get some work done. And I went back to the house, and it didn't, didn't smell anything. It was just it felt different. I said to Mary Alice before I left, I said, something doesn't feel right in the house. 
Would you just call the, I don't know why I said call the gas company, but I said call the gas company and have them come and just check things out. I didn't think there was anything to it. I was just trying to allay my anxieties that I have. The campus in those days was located in South Wichita. I drove to South Wichita. When I got to the campus, my entire staff was out on the sidewalk, and they said, Mark, you need to go home immediately. When I got to my house, the gas company representatives were all there. My house, you understand, was filled with carbon monoxide. So I walked down through the house with the lady who was in charge of the team. And as we walked through the house, we went to the basement bedroom. Jonathan had not made his bed from the day before. It looked like somebody had slept there, but she said to me when she saw the bed, she said, nobody slept there last night. I said, how did you know? She said, because if anybody had been sleeping in that bed, which was adjacent to the furnace, if anybody had been sleeping in that bed, they would have been dead by 1 o'clock this morning. You say, it's just the way life works. No, no. I've experienced that too. There's a vibe to this. Maybe vibe is not a spiritual word. It's just the best one I can come up. I'm a child of the 70s. The year was 2006. I can't explain it. I've been a lifelong Honda fan. I had bought so many Honda Accords, but I got out of the will of God and bought a Toyota. <laughs> no, I love Toyotas. I have, that's all I have now is Toyotas. But I was at the Toyota dealership, and I saw a Scion, which is a car for young people. I'm 50 years old, but I see this Scion TC with five speed, and it looked like it needed me. I never, my wife is so good to put up with me, but she, she saw that and she was optimistic about it. I told her it got good fuel economy. <laughs> so I drove that thing around. I had a conference in Texas and I was in Dallas and I always want to get home as soon as I can. So about three o'clock, 3.30 in the morning, I got in my Scion TC and I left Dallas headed for Wichita. I got to the Oklahoma border and called Mary Alice and talked to her for a few minutes, probably about four or five in the morning at that point. And Mary Alice says, is it raining yet? And I said, no, it's dry as a moment. The moment I said that, it started raining. Things always go downhill for me when I get into Oklahoma. I, I can't explain that. Well, I drove all the way through Oklahoma. It was rained on me all the way, but then I got to Kansas. And I, do you guys know how we are here in Kansas? If you're a guest here, let me just let you know this. When we have a front come through, the wind off that leading edge of the front can be pretty violent. And I was on the turnpike at mile marker 38, just coming around to bend gently at 73 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, one of those wind gusts hit the back of my car and I felt the back end of my car give way and start turning around. And now I'm going backward up the Kansas Turnpike at 73 miles an hour. There is no way to steer your car if you're going backward. Except it felt like somebody was steering my car because my car, after spinning around, just started going directly backward up, up the Kansas Turnpike. I had a long time to think about it. I thought this is probably the end for me because this is how a lot of people get killed. But then very quietly, gently, my car just started edging toward the median, the concrete median, and it just began to slide up against the median, didn't even fire the airbags. And it just brought it quietly to the stop. 
And all of a sudden, it hit my mind. You know how most people are killed like that? It's traffic that's oncoming. And I looked, and as God is my witness, I looked down the turnpike, and there was heavy traffic on the turnpike, but it was about a quarter mile away. It was almost like a hand just sort of held them back. I unbuckled my seatbelt, walked to the side of the road, and quietly called Mary Alice. I think about that accident almost every day of my life because it just had an unusual vibe to it. It was like when I was out of control, it was as if another force just took control. If you ever have one of these interactions, I really believe you will know it. Now, someone could be sitting out there saying, Mark, that's kind of far-fetched. Not biblically. There is a story in the Bible, actually there are many stories I guess I could have summoned this from, but there is a story in the Bible about this happening with a Bible character. The guy's name is Daniel. We covered him last summer. Daniel is late in his life. He's probably up around 90 years of age. He has been part of the Babylonian government, but the Babylonians have been overthrown by the Persians, and now Daniel is at the top of the Persian government. And it really grinds on some of the other Persian diplomats that this Jewish person has been given such prominence. And so they decide they're going to bring him down. And they go to the king who loved Daniel, and the king evidently didn't pay a whole lot of attention to details. And they said to the king, we want to make a rule that elevates you. And this rule is that nobody will be able to pray for 30 days unless they pray to you, because they knew Daniel prayed to God. And they knew one of two things was going to happen. Either Daniel would cave on his convictions and go along, and then they could rip him for that, or Daniel would pray, and they could finish him off by having him thrown to the lions. And I should tell you, there was part of the legal structure of the law of the Medes and the Persians that once there was a rule, or once there was a law passed, not even the king could supersede it. Well, Daniel's 90 years old. He's gone a long way following God. He's not going to turn now. So he goes home and he opens up his windows so everybody can see. And he knelt down and prayed three times a day like he always did, the Bible said. And although the king didn't want to do it, Darius had to have Daniel thrown into the den of lions. And ordinarily those lions were kept hungry. A human would not have survived in there for very long. But the king stayed up all night. Worrying, in fact, trying to find some kind of solution to get Daniel out. But I want you to read what happened the next morning. It says the king went down to the den of lions, and when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? I'm looking for a three-letter answer. I want to hear Daniel say, Yes, yes. And technically and in every sense, it is true. But it is not how Daniel answered the question. I want you to look at it today because I think more than any statement that we could use in today's message, this one statement sums up our introduction to angels. David ans- or Daniel answered, my God sent his angel, to shut the lions' mouths so they would not hurt me. My God sent his angel. Daniel didn't say, my God sent my angel. We talk like that sometimes. My God sent his angel to get me out of trouble. And guys, 
That's what the Bible says about angels. They are spirit messengers sent to help and care for those who will receive God's salvation. Well, it's time to close. So if you're here today and you're wondering or watching online and it's like, Mark, what's your purpose for this sermon series? Well, I'm commanded to talk about what God talks about. But more than that, I I think, or at least along with that, I think we need to know that there is more going on than we can see. You and I, in America especially, have been trained to to be materialists. I don't mean materialist in the sense of wanting things. I mean materialist in the sense of philosophy or worldview, that matter can explain everything. And even those of us who are Christ followers, our education has taught us to have a materialist viewpoint. And that leaves us vulnerable. Because you and I have to function in a world of shaky economies, health worries, rights and wars, political hatred, fractured families, and yes, sickness, pain, and death. I think if we're not careful, we can actually begin to feel like we're in the minority. But I want you to hear something. In the book of Daniel, Daniel writes about seeing heaven. And he said, I watched as the ancient one, that's God, sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Could I just say, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you ever feel like you're in the minority in this world, you are not in the minority because God's angels are present among us. And no matter what happens to us or how we may be threatened, we are not alone in this world. In fact, God's spirit beings are everywhere. Now, someone will say, well, Mark, I don't really get that. We've been taught something else that's not only wrong, it's counterfactual. We have been taught to bonus physical manifestations and to discount the spirit. But you and I are spirit beings. You're not a body that has a spirit. You're a spirit that has a body. This body's temporary. It's disposable. It's going to wear out someday. And the part of you that is you is going to live on. So you're already a spirit being living among other spirit beings. In fact, look at this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is real is unseen and eternal. So yeah, we're not alone. I'm so thankful for Billy Graham because Billy Graham did something very courageous. He tackled this subject in 1973, and he wrote a book simply called Angels, and it's sold and continues to sell millions of copies. And I love the book. I've read it several times. I've read it again, getting ready for the series. But there's a story that he tells that I, I really love. It's the story of John Patton, who was a missionary along with his family to the New Hebrides Islands. And it was a pioneer, front-edge mission work. And one night there were a band of natives that surrounded his home intent on burning it down and killing the Patton family. And the Pattons thought, maybe this is it. Maybe we're going to die. But they prayed all night. And they were so amazed when they woke up the next morning that all the warriors were gone and they were still alive. 
A wonderful thing happened about a year after that. The chief of the tribe of those warriors that surrounded them intent on killing them and burning them out, the chief accepted Christ and became a friend of John Patton. And, and one day John got up the courage to ask him, you know that night when your warriors surrounded the house, why didn't you kill us? And the chief said, well, <clears throat> it was those men that you had there with you. And Patton said, there were no men with me. It's just my wife and I. And the chief argued that he had seen many men standing guard, hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. And he said, we were afraid to attack them. We're not alone. We're surrounded. Angels are spirit messengers who listen for each of God's commands and they execute his instructions and they are sent to help and to care for those of us who will inherit salvation. Well, let's finish there. Angels don't make salvation. They don't bring salvation. They just help those of us who get it. So maybe this is a great time to ask the question, do you know for sure that you have salvation in your life. This is a biblical concept. Salvation just simply means several things. It means God forgives you of all your sins. It means you're adopted into his family as his daughter or son. It means you can never be cast out. And it means that you have eternity in heaven and to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That's just a few of the things that salvation brings. And this thing about the angels coming to help you, that's just part of the package. So how do you get that? Do you have to join a church? No, there's no church that can do this for you. You say, well, do I have to give money? Money can't buy this. Well, do I have to, like, live a particular kind of life? Well, even if you could, what are you going to do about your past record? No. There is only one way to receive this, and that's to receive it as a gift. It is by grace that you're saved, Hebrews 2, Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace that you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of anything we do, but the gift. That's what Christmas is about. In God's plan of redemption, he sent his son into the world. And God lived in skin for 33 years, ran the table, and never did a single thing wrong. I can't go 30 minutes without doing something wrong. And yet Jesus went 33 years and he lived the life that I can't live. But then a strange thing happened. A trade took place. And I, my sin was clicked and dragged to him. And he carried my sin to the cross in your sin. Everything we ever have done wrong, ever will do wrong. And God punished Jesus like he had done all the junk that we had done so that his right life could be clicked and dragged and put under our name. That's what it means have salvation is a gift which is why the Bible says ask for it whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved Romans 10 13 and that's why every week at New Spring pretty much I lead a prayer that if you want to join me in that prayer you can pray it to God and God will hear your prayer these aren't magic words it's just simple words but would you just bow your heads with me both auditoriums and if you want to pray with me, you can think about each line and decide if you want to say this to God. Here we go.
Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And since he's alive, I want Jesus to be my savior and my king. Thank you for forgiving me and for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're full campus today, but wherever you are, I want you to do something before you leave if you just pray with me. I have a gift box for you. It won't cost you anything. It's not as wonderful as salvation, but it's just as free. It's a Bible just like I preach from, a New Spring Bible. It's a book I wrote and some other cool stuff. It is free to you. All you have to do is go to any info center, and the only thing you need to say is, I prayed with Mark. They won't hassle you or stalk you. They just want to give you the gift. We want to take, our, take your first steps with you as a Christ follower. Thank you so much for being here. We'll talk about angels again next week.